I really did think this piece of paper was a map for a possible ghost of, of myself, if I might turn up very late for, for the lecture. I do apologize for being so late. Uh, it, it, it did. I, I thought it was just around the corner, but I, I, I took the wrong, wrong turn, and, and it, it happens so often in life. <laughs> it's one of those, one of those uh, uh, unexpected turns brought me uh, brought me here in the first place, so I, I, I can't dismiss uh, the, the, the importance of getting lost. <laughs> so entirely, but I do apologize for being so late, and thank you for for your patience. <clears throat> I've been asked to talk about Sri Ramana Maharshi today, and I was. Um, thinking about him on my way here and um, and I, I really uh, think I should begin by saying how extraordinarily privileged I am to be to be here uh, uh, lecturing for the Temenos Academy and this evening to to have as the subject matter of my lecture none other than than my guru uh, Sri Ramana Maharshi whom I never I met in the flesh, but who is uh, very, very real to me, and uh, clearly more real to me than the knowledge of how to get from A to B. And I'm <laughs> uh, but he has he has enabled me to to understand many things about myself and our world, which are not very pleasant. For instance. Uh, all day today I've been thinking, we were talking about this, Kathleen and I, uh, yesterday. One of the, um, I think I'll have to remove the sweater, it is really quite warm here. One of the great, one of the very disturbing uh, <coughs> artists of our time is surely Francis Bacon who died not very long ago in this country. And I was suggesting to Kathleen, and I think she agreed with me, that much as we might dislike his work, there is a, a powerful honesty uh, there, and we have to come to terms with it. Now, I'd like to argue today that Ramana Maharshi enables us to come to terms with the darkness, with the despair, with, with the hopelessness which Francis Bacon's paintings revealed to us about ourselves. There are those paintings those uh, grim pictures of men uh, who seem to me to be saying this, that we are, uh, we are we're just this, this is nothing else, we're just this body, and this body was born, lives, and will die, and that's all there is to it. If that is so, if we are really only this body, which is going to die. Then a question arises immediately, a, 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 a satanic question, if you like. If we are indeed merely this body which dies, then why not advance the hour of death, both individually and collectively as a species? There would be this enormous temptation of annihilation. For us, and there is this, as I see uh, the world uh, un un unfolding uh, tragedy after tragedy, 
in continent after continent, it seems to me that there really is a, a yielding to, to this uh, desire to, to bring it all to an end. Is there an answer? There's a deep going answer, not a cheap answer that says, well, life's still wonderful, never mind what's happening to others, never mind what's happening to, to other species, never mind what's happening to other races, cultures. Enjoy yourself while you can. No, not that kind of answer. Is there a deep answer? Is there a satisfying deep answer to the question, why should there be life at all? Why should we make the effort to live, to sustain uh, human civilization, life on earth, the earth itself? Is there an answer to this question uh, which satisfies or which um, certainly provokes us to, to think again to look at Francis Bacon's figures and, and to say to him, thank you for telling us how terrible it can be, but uh, uh, but how uh, how wonderful it would have been if you had if you had had a darshan of Ramana Maharishi. I think there is, and that is the life of Ramana Maharishi. What happened to him at the age of sixteen? 17, in 1896, holds the key to, to the answer to this question, why there should be life on earth. You might say this is absurd. When he was in, in a, small, uh, a small town in South India, Madurai. Uh, how could that be relevant? What happened in 1896 in a small town in, in Tamil Nadu, how could it be relevant to, to, to what we, we confront? I'm afraid it's these small things, these small miracles. Whether they happen in Bethlehem uh, ages ago or in Kapilavastu uh, or, or in, in, in Madurai, these are the miracles really that, that help to sustain us. What happened to this boy? Let me tell you the story of what happened to the boy then Kataraman, that was his name, in 1896 when he was 16 year old, uh, a school dropout. Uh, Surely, uh, be uh, of great interest to so many uh, young people today, both in this country and, and mine, who are school dropouts. The vast majority of young Indians are, uh, are school dropouts today. They are enrolled in village schools, Kathleen, and the government often produces statistics of enrollment, high enrollment, but they leave school uh, shortly after they are enrolled. They have no real interest. And I'm told television uh, 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 equipment in the classroom hasn't uh, made it easier for them to to, to be interested in, in, in school education. They, they, they quit school. Ramana Maharshi also was a sort of dropout. He lost interest in, in academic studies. I believe one of the things that caused him acute distress was a book of, of grammar, English grammar. I think it was, it was a <laughs> he, he turned it aside very, very dramatically, a book of grammar, which is rather profound for those who know the great Shankaracharya, who is in the same tradition, who in that great bhajana of his, as those of you who know Sanskrit will remember, said, Nahi Nahi Dukrung Lakshati Karane. Dukrung is, a, is an abstruse rule of Sanskrit grammar. And Shankaracharya in this poem says that when, when death comes suddenly, rules of grammar are not going to save it. <laughs> so this boy, without, without knowing any Sanskrit, pushed aside this, this book of grammar. I'm sure because he realized that the questions that he really wanted to face were, were not, the answers to those questions were not of that in this book. But that is also, I think, a way of rejecting mere scripture without realization. Uh, a book of grammar is wonderful, provided it's going to lead to human speaking. But if it's only going to lead to, to, uh, to difficulties and, 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 
and failure to pass examinations and so on, it was going to lead to uh, to an abandonment of of living speech in in in, in favour of uh, merely uh, correct sentences, then surely that's not going to help very much. And, and Ramana Maharshi was concerned with how we are to live and how we are to realise in our lives the, the supreme truth which satisfies and saves us from that despair which is inherent in, in all bodily existence. Surely, all bodily existence. It amazes me how, how animal life especially sustains itself. Human life, I have not yet found, I found animals looking very unhappy, but I have not yet found a despairing looking animal other than human, the human animal. It's very strange. There is clearly a, an innate self-realization in, in all about the human animal, which, which keeps them going, despite all the cruelty that we inflict on them, and despite the, the violence which is their way of life. Okay, is there not such a, 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 such a self-realization in human life? What happened to Ramana Maharshi suggests that there is, deeply clouded though that is, and, and concealed though it is by, by the ego. Now, Ramana Maharshi was uh, an athletic sort of young uh, schoolboy. He, uh, he had no physical uh, ailments. He, he, he wasn't interested in studies, nor was he schooled in the Sanskrit language. He was born into the Brahmanical tradition. Now, this is very important, friends. This is where he is a representative of humanity today. He was born into a sacred tradition, an ancient sacred tradition the Brahmanical tradition, but he was not schooled in it. Now this is roughly true of every human being today, almost every human being today. We are all born into tradition, but we are no longer schooled in these traditions. He was also very young. Humanity today is very young. The average human being today is a young person. In, 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 in Asia, you, Asia is a continent of young people, and, and, and a vast number of people there are. All over the world, young people are at the heart of what matters. They are in positions of leadership, and they take decisions, good or bad. It's a world of young people. Ramana Maharshi, in 1896, is a young man born into a sacred tradition, not schooled in it. A representative human being. Most unexpectedly, he, um, he um, recalled this many years later, he experienced the fear of death at the age of 16. He, he felt that he was going to die. In the way in which a lot of people today feel that the world is going to come to an end. Here again, he, he represents the anxiety of the whole world today. The anxiety of this one young individual in a small town in Tamil Nadu represents the anxiety of the whole world today, that it's all going to come to an end. What does this young man do? He is seated in... Uh, these things are important to me because I'm a devotee. They may not be so interesting to you, but I have to mention some of the details. The house, his uncle's house, in Madurai, it's a sacred town, sacred uh, because of a great temple. A, a, a great temple... Uh, the, the deity uh, <coughs> show you some, some water for our friend to, to help her cough the weather has been difficult
So, uh, Madurai has a temple to the Divine Mother, Meenakshi, the, the fish-eyed one. And Ramana Maharshi's house, uh, his uncle's house, where he, uh, uh, he was staying, was not very far from this temple. You might almost say that the Divine Mother, that which sustains all life on earth, in 1896 decided to test a representative human being. You might almost uh, uh, imagine the following uh, kind of story. You might imagine that in the court of that temple, amongst all the other visitors, was death himself. And he approached the Divine Mother and said, Well, I, I, it occurs to me, by, by the kind of uh, foreknowledge that you have given me, that, that humanity uh, have lost the, the ability to, uh, uh, to, to look at me uh, without fear. And that they're likely to, to give it all up in a hundred years' time. And uh, I, I think you must, you must accept this and allow me to, to hasten the process. The death, the, the prophet, the, uh, says that this is going to happen, and, and, and you know it better than I do, but I, I also have been gifted with this knowledge, and I can see that humanity is going to make a mess of everything. And they really haven't got the courage to, to understand death in its, in, in its relationship to life. And they're going to get frightened, they're going to create conditions where life is going to be very difficult and throw in the towel and, and go, why don't you give me this opportunity to be your true servant? Hasten the process. And, and, and you can picture the Divine Mother, this, this uh, wonderful image of hers, uh, looking at death and, and, and perhaps saying wordlessly, well, just round the corner there is a young boy uh, uh, feeling quite uh, <clears throat> dissatisfied with, uh, with grammar. Why don't you go and, and surprise him suddenly? <laughs> and, and find out for yourself if representative humanity has it in them or not. To, to love life and not to fear death, not even to hate death, but to bring death into the ecology of life. Why don't you go and test him? I'm, I'm not going to uh, warn him about your visit. There, there, there he is, waiting for you. So death, uh, uh, death arrives uh, in the form of fear, which this young uh, boy experiences. Fear of death. So here is this young boy, suddenly afraid of death. And I picture him, this, this Brahmin boy, this very beautiful Brahmin boy. Perhaps he was bare, uh, above the waist, he was bare-bodied. He wore a sacred thread. And it, he must have been really scared. Beads of perspiration must have formed on that sacred thread, as I see him. He must have sat on the ground. Then he reports, many years later, that it occurred to him not that he should seek help or uh, anything of the sort, he says, I decided to find out what death was. He said, death has come. And this is entirely consistent with, with types of South Indian uh, culture now fast disappearing to honor a guest. Here is a guest, and he wanted to get the guest to be comfortable. He wanted to find out who the guest was. Death. So he says to himself, I, I, it occurred to me that I should... Uh, I should imagine that I was dying and actually dead, that the death has come now, and I, I must, uh, I must uh, find out what it is. So with all the passion of, of what you might call Greek philosophical curiosity, 
and with all the courtesy of the Brahmanical tradition, <laughs> this, this young boy decides to investigate that. And he lies down, stiff. And he says to himself, death means the body becomes stiff. Then he went on to think the thought means Oh, by the way, uh, this is uh, a yogic practice, uh, a shavasana, some of you perhaps uh, uh, do yoga, which uh, the, the, the perfection of this particular practice takes several decades, but clearly he achieved this in, 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 in a second. He made his body completely stiff. Then he says to himself, death means that breathing stops. So would you believe it, he, he stops breathing. He stops breathing. The, the, the perfection of the yogic practice called um, pranayama takes several decades. He achieves it in a trice. Then he thinks the thought, uh, then he thinks the thought, death means all thoughts cease. So he stops thinking, switches off thought. It, it takes several lifetimes, I believe, to achieve it. <laughs> <laughs> and then the thought occurs to him, and then, then the body is taken to the cremation ground, it becomes ashes. Then he says, the body dies. Then he asks him, but am I this body? And the answer wells up within his heart. No, you are not. And this becomes realization. This becomes the, 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 the ceaseless awareness of self. As, uh, as being the only reality everywhere in all beings in nothingness too and he becomes the Maharaj you might tell the story in another form in, in, in a form again suited to, to South Indian culture with which some of you uh, I know are familiar I sometimes uh, uh, see this visit of, uh, 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 of death as the visit of a policeman to Ramarama it's quite possible the death decides to appear as a policeman. And uh, uh, sometimes policemen in Indian towns do uh, turn up and say, you've got stolen property here, and they, they can be very threatening. So this policeman appears in Ramana, young Venkataraman's room, and says, you've got stolen property here. He says, no, 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 I can assure you, there's nothing stolen here at all, absolutely nothing. This is, this is not. He said, no, no, you've got stolen properties here, and it belongs to, not to you, but to me. So, what is your body? That's, that's, it belongs to time, to karma. It's not yours. It's stolen property. He says, take it. He says, breath, your breath, that's stolen property. It comes from, from the sky. It's not yours. From space. Take it, sir. Your, your, your thought, it comes from culture. It comes from history. It's not yours. Take it, sir. Then young Venkatraman asks, but am I yours? And that vanishes. That which is ours may be somebody else's, but that which we are is nobody. Is the truth. That which is. So today, if we can reflect that we are not this body, but not in the sense that we are something else whose home is in a heaven, that also involves a temptation of annihilation. Let me explain. If we believe that we are a soul other than the body, an immaterial substance other than the body, whose proper home is not here, but somewhere else, then somebody, and it could well be a, a, a theologian of the future, 
Somebody, it did happen in, in the strange community called Jonestown some years ago. A, a, a Reverend Jones committed suicide with, with all his followers. I think he wanted to hasten his, uh, his arrival in heaven. Somebody might say, well, this, this body is corrupt. This material order has, we have nothing to do with this. Our home is in Swarga, in heaven. And you can describe it in the theologies of all the religions of the world, including, of course, Hinduism. And there might occur a compact, uh, an alliance between the nihilists and the theologians of the future. It's a dreadful possibility. The strange things happen. And they might come together and say, especially in the continuing, uh, 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 in, the, in, the, in the ecologically degraded circumstances of, of the future, life would seem le- less and less worth living. And there might be a, a sudden uh, uh, invocation of these, these, this, this doctrine of, of our, our, our home being somewhere else. And, uh, and, and the, the, the nihilist uh, 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 refusal to believe in anything other than the body and, and a decision to hasten this hour. Dreadful thought. But that is not what Ramana Maharshi's realization teaches us. It teaches us that we are not merely this body. But it doesn't teach us that we are something else, somewhere else. I think what it teaches us is that we are the self, that which we do not doubt at all, but that this self, Images itself in all bodies, including this body, including subtle bodies, including celestial bodies, in all bodies, not just human bodies, not just gross bodies, all bodies. And not only uh, uh, in, in living uh, uh, beings, but in, in what is not living. The one self, the universal self, is what each one of us is. And that images itself, sees itself as, uh, as, as a human being, as other beings. As, as nature, as, as nothingness. And the supreme task is to, to image this self well. Everybody wants to make pictures of themselves. This is the most basic instinct that there is. If I were to tell a child, if I were to have, a, a, well, a, there, there is a, a, a photograph of yours somewhere in this room, she will turn the whole place upside down to find that picture. I think it's, it's, it's very basic. If, if have, and there's also a piece of chocolate somewhere. I'm not sure what her priorities would be. <laughs> I think to look for an image of yourself is, is a wonderful, basic instinct. And I think the teaching of Ramana Maharshi can be summarized in the following way. This is the teaching of the Upanishads. That the world is a picture of the self. And all pictures are meant to be worthy pictures. An unworthy picture is not a picture. But an unworthy picture is, is, a, is a picture in the making. So you're not meant to despise that which you think is unworthy. You're meant to struggle heroically, ethically, ecologically, practically, politically, morally, personally to improve that picture, to make the light of the self shine through it. And a body, which this, this young body, light shone through it, it became a perfect image of the self. But when that very body, when it was old and he was dying of cancer, he had cancer of the arm. He permitted his disciples to treat him in, in a variety of ways. Uh, allopathy, homeopathy, every kind of uh, system of medicine was permitted by him. But then when the surgeons arrived and they said, uh, Ramana Maharshi, we will have to amputate your arm now. He said, no. Why? I wonder. Because he was the great storyteller. He represented, he imaged the symmetry, the beauty of the self. A distorted body, distorted merely to prolong life, would not have imaged the self adequately in his life. So that is a good criterion. Take, take the whole question of population. 
which worries adults people. A very small population of the world, human beings, will not image the self because the self is is eternal, is 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 perfect, is complete, is self-assured, is without any anxiety. But a small population is like, like, hard, hardly likely to, to survive even. I mean, a, a really a abnormally small population. So that's not going to be a, a, a worthy image of the self. On the, it will image uh, um, uh, not immortality, but it will image uh, oh, uh, incapacity to, to, to live. And that, that's not worthy of it. So we must be energetic in, in our efforts to live, of course. That follows. Because if we don't, then this body and these communities will not image the, the immortal self. It will image these, these bodies and these communities will image something else, something, in, something in, imperfect, something, something not at all immortal, something which is likely to die very soon. On the other hand, an unmanageably large population uh, and, and a style of life which seeks to extract everything from the earth to, to, to fulfill our, our greed would again image not the self but something very insecure. That would be a bad image of the self. So the real argument for a moderate, uh, for a modest and, and working population is, is a philosophical and a spiritual argument. It's not an alarmist argument. And I think it's about time we, we began to think why we should be a manageable population, not how are we to achieve this through whatever means. That's never going to work. So the, the, this doctrine, I mentioned this, because these, these teachings, these profound teachings of great traditions, uh, uh, revealed again and again through great sages, are, are extremely relevant to, to all our really practical concerns. So I do think that the anxiety of survival is something that's meant to be addressed. It's meant to be addressed at a very deep level. Be merely by reminding people that there is a great danger uh, to, to, to where we live, that this is likely to result in, in, in global death, might even hasten the process. I'm reminded of a terrible pun which I read a long time ago, where, where uh, I think it was a clergyman who, who said, man does not live by dread alone. I think it was it made that. But, but, but by fear alone, it's not how we live. We're not meant to fear. That's not how we live. So, only by discovering that there is this, this adventure of imaging in our individual lives, in our family lives, in our community lives, in our species life, in our life simply as beings on earth. And, and this, if there is a life beyond, the, t the task will be exactly the same. Everywhere, throughout the cosmos, in all possible worlds, the supreme task will be to allow the light of the self to shine through all forms. <coughs> This is what I think this boy teaches us. In 1896, when he confronted death, he was doing what a, a much, in, in antiquity, a, 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 a young boy again called Nachiketa must have done. There is an Upanishad, a, a great canonical scripture of the Hindus called the Katho Upanishad. An Upanishad of great difficulty, I think that is what it means. Where a young boy uh, is present at a, at, a, at a sacrifice which his father is performing and his father has invited many guests and guests are meant to be given gifts and what are the gifts his father is giving his guests? guests? He's giving away all his useless cattle to his guests and the young boy is very disappointed he turns to his father and says but who are you going to give me away to? and as often happens our beautiful fathers lose their temper and he says I'm going to give you to death 
you're going to talk back like that. So Rachikeva says, all right, give me to death. And you cannot say something like that at a sacrifice and not do it. So he's offered to death. And then the Upanishad records Nachiketa's uh, conversation with death. This is an ancient Upanishad. And death, uh, yeah, death uh, says to this young boy, oh, uh, oh go away, you know, already I, I have a bad image, a bad press. And if, if I'm going to take a young Brahmin life, there's going to be no end to what the newspaper is going to write about me. Why don't you, <laughs> why don't you, why don't you go away? Nachiketa says, no, 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 of course not. Uh, uh, you must uh, who else but you can teach me the secret of immortality you are the greatest teacher of immortality he says no 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 you have all the all the gifts of the, all the all the wonderful things of all the world he says no 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 but are they going to last forever he says no but, but, but that's not the point he says that is the point I want that which will never die that is immortality that is self-realized teach me that and the rest of the Upanishad is, is just that death teaching young Nachiketa the secret of immortality. I think exactly this happens in 1896. In, in a more modern idiom, perhaps, uh, through this kind of existential inquiry, it is, he, he mimes his way to self-realization, this young boy. How, how, how wonderful it would be, a, a dramatic performance in, in our times, which would show this, this great victory. But through, through a piece of acting, he embarrasses death, he, he persuades death, teach him the secret of immortality, which is that we are not this body, but we are not something else either. We are that which illumines all bodies. And this task of illumination must be then done with ethical and ecological sensitivity. And this was done by another great teacher of modern India, Mahatma Gandhi, on a big scale. I am convinced that Gandhi, Gandhi's work was blessed by Ramana Maharshi. Let me share this with you. I have no doubt about this at all. You might say, well, what is your evidence for this? I have evidence, quite apart from an intuitive conviction. If you read the, the recorded uh, 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 sayings of Ramana Maharshi, you find frequent reference to Gandhiji. People ask him, Gandhi's followers visit him. And they are often sent by Gandhi to Ramana Maharshi in South India. Gandhi is engaged in this struggle for the freedom of India, for the self, for the soul of India, if you like. And he sends some of his uh, disciples from time to time. Go, go, you, you're feeling very tired and depressed, aren't you? Go and sit with the sage, Ramana Maharshi, and come back refreshed. And they often ask him and say, do you have any message for Gandhi? He says, where is the need for a message when, when a heart speaks to heart? There's no need for a message. So he does really bless Gandhi. I'm not saying he directs the freedom struggle in any way. No, of course not. But then the, the most important piece of evidence that I have for thinking and for declaring that Gandhi, Gandhi's work is blessed by Ramana Maharshi that the, the, the supreme example in politics in, in, in the public realm of, uh, of ethically and ecologically sensitive uh, uh, behavior and leadership, that this effort is blessed by, by this sage, because in 1939, a crucial year for the world for, for, for this country uh, starts the war with Hitler, is a year in India of great uh, disappointment and depression. The freedom struggle has, has more or less come to a standstill. Nothing is really happening. And Gandhi sends two of his uh, uh, close uh, associates to Ramana Maharshi uh, for, uh, uh, for some kind of comfort. 
Rajendra Prasad, who, uh, who became the first president of India, and Jamnalal Bajaj, who was the financier of the freedom movement. And Rajendra Prasad is uh, asked not to, not to raise any question, but just to sit quietly in the presence of the sage. Uh, Jamnalal Bajaj is not uh, uh, held to any such condition. It would have been impossible, I'm told, to, to persuade Jamnalal Bajaj not to ask any questions. that sort of person. So he does ask a number of questions, and all of this is recorded. One of the questions he asks, the sage is this. Maharshi, he says, when independence comes, and there's no, no sign of independence coming in 1939, mind you. After all this sacrifice and all this suffering, ought we not to be elated, to be happy? Would you believe it? Maharshi says, of course not. You are but instruments in, in, in the hands of a, 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 of a superior power in the hands of God, you must leave it entirely to that power. You mustn't care for the results. You mustn't think that it's, if victory comes that you are the author of it. You mustn't think that. Now, my submission is that here again the teaching of the sage is so supremely relevant to understanding the tragedy of modern times. When independence came, no, look, when the war ended, the Allies thought, forgive me, no offense meant, that they had defeated Hitler. Now, all kinds of factors, historical and, and, and other, uh, helped in, in, in defeating Hitler and Mussolini and others. But the Allies thought that they had done this and they dropped those atom bombs on Japan, quite unnecessarily, I think, in my judgment. They, they spoiled a moral victory. Now, you may not agree with me, but this is my, my considered feeling, that those bombs could have been dropped on an offshore island. Somebody said to me, that, but, but look, the problem, but no, but, but there's only one, one bomb available. And, and, but the probability of a bomb going off is exactly the same whether it's dropped on an offshore island or on human beings, I, should have, I would have thought. And I think that that would have probably persuaded the Japanese to, uh, to surrender. I think it might have been more successful because I'm told by students of Japanese psychology that they would have regarded it as a, as a very shameful thing, that they were not even regarded as worthy targets for bombs. <laughs> it's quite possible that, that uh, the, the government of Mr. Truman lacked uh, uh, anthropological advisors of any subtlety. <laughs> Be that as it may, in India, when independence came, the Congress Party, which was the vehicle, and, and others who were, thought they had uh, 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 won independence, and they decided to, to assist uh, others in, in, in dividing the country. And this was a great mistake, I think. In this, no doubt, they were greatly helped by the, the, the haste of the British Empire to wind itself up, yes. But that's another matter. A lot of people thought that they had achieved uh, independence or assisted in, uh, in it, in the process and so on. And, and so they could do what they liked. liked. And they divided this, this indivisible uh, India. Just as uh, uh, Stalin marched into Europe and, and stole a lot of territories and, and, uh, and Mr. Truman dropped those bombs on, uh, on Japan, ruining the, 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 the moral... Uh, a stature of that victory. So Ramana Maharshi's teaching in 1939 really is, is, is politics at its highest, uh, 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 best level of efficacy and, and, and ethics ignored. I don't think Gandhi ignored it. This is why I think Gandhi was blessed by Ramana Maharshi. Because when independence came, he was not for partition, for the division of India. He was in a small place called Noakali in Bengal, saving innocent lives. He was doing his duty. It was, not his, it was not for him to try and stop what he could not stop, but to do what he could do. 
what he could do was to save innocent lives, was to give courage to those who had lost everything, everything. And he did that, and he uh, gave his life, the process. He refused to yield to hatred, to the doctrine of hatred, to a justification of hatred. He refused to do that. He continues to be unpopular with some, but his, his popularity with many others grows every day. Because he's one man in recent times who may or may not have succeeded in his political aims. Clearly, one of his aims, that India should remain undivided. In this he was not successful, but he refused to yield to the, uh, to the doctrine of hatred, to the, uh, to the suggestion, which, uh, to the satanic suggestion, which something must have occurred to him too, that he should do something and encourage, uh, for instance, all Hindus to slaughter all Muslims because the demand for partition came from Muslims, had he encouraged that by the slightest hint, by the slightest gesture or look in his eye, today there would be, if there is some desire, if there is a Tavernos Academy which is interested in the study of Hinduism and Islam, there would not have been such a possibility if Gandhi, a saint, had permitted the slaughter of human beings in the name of religion. So there are blessings for the world. In that great refusal, of Gandhi. In 1942, he launched the crucial phase of the freedom movement when he uttered those hurtful words, quit India to, British, to the British Empire. But that was his duty. It was very important for another kind of battle to be going on during those fateful years. There was the battle of arms, of violence, of greed in Europe. There had to, there had to be another kind of battle in India, a battle for justice, a battle for the right of peoples to be free. So intuitively, guided by God, he launched this struggle. He was, he, I'm told by contemporary witnesses, I've read their account, that there was, a, there was a kind of a divine impatience in him at that time. But in '47, there was a divine patience. He would not take the wrong step. I took the wrong turn. That's an arrogant. That, that, that's not like Gandhi. He refused to take the slightest wrong turn. And I think we're all, uh, 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 we're all uh, uh, richer for that. There is that example. And, and much is preserved in it. That's again Ramana Maharishi. Now, a few um, other details about Ramana Maharshi at this point. I think students of Indian history would bear, bear me out that there was a great hatred of, uh, of the white man in India in the 19th century. A great fear of the white man on the part of ordinary people in towns and villages. And this, uh, this affected everybody. This affected the educated and the uneducated because there was a great sense of humiliation. This great civilization uh, for a variety of reasons including its own, uh, I, I think, uh, uh, acts of uh, uh, acts of uh, uh, cruelty uh, to, towards its own population had, had come under the, uh, the governance of another race, another civilization. This is not a pleasant thing. But the result of this was a great, great fear and a great uh, sense of uh, hatred. But Ramana Maharshi is one of those who pro it, it didn't affect him at all. This is an important detail. From the earliest days of his residence uh, on the hill of Tiruvannamalai, there were visitors, there were European visitors, English visitors, and he welcomed them all. They were, they were all welcome. There's absolutely no question of any color prejudice on his part or on their part. 
They visited him. A young police officer called Humphreys, I'm told, was one of the first European visitors. He became a close disciple of Ramana Maharshi. Another English uh, uh, disciple was Arthur Osborne. During the war years, Ramana Maharshi was, was, uh, was, was very solicitous to him and his family. And his book on Ramana Maharshi, called Ramana Maharshi, The Path of Self-Knowledge, remains one of the very best books on Ramana Maharshi. Do, do uh, uh, buy and read this little book by, by Arthur Osborne called Ramana Maharshi, The Path of Self-Knowledge. I'm sure you can get it in, in some bookshops in, uh, in London. So there was this, this relationship at, at, uh, in, in, in the case of Ramana Maharshi. There was not because, he, uh, because of some, uh, some ethical concern merely, but it came spontaneously. All races, all cultures of human beings were, were, were but images of the self. And they were, everyone was, was meant to be assisted in this by the sage. And he did exactly that. And not only human beings. And I'm going to have to tell you some stories now, which may amuse. I hope they will amuse. But they, they've both amused and instructed me. Ramana Maharshi was not only solicitous towards human beings, both uh, Indians and non-Indian, non but also towards animals. He was especially... Uh, 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 on especially he was very very intimate terms with uh, with the monkeys who uh, lived on that hill and I, I report the following facts with some uh, interpretation as a devotee for, for your consideration uh, there is a, 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 a there is a science here I think Ramana Maharshi is a field uh, anthropologist here he's a he's a, uh, he's, a, he's, a uh, he's a scientist so Ramana the scientist he says that there was a particular monkey group he was very fond of and they respected him and he often visited them and he says that he studied their ways carefully and that how wonderful, wonderfully coherent their society was and how unlike human beings they were. They, they didn't worry about that tomorrow. They, they ate what they could for the day and, and left it at that. And they, they were supremely happy unlike human beings. Then he said but the king of this, this, this particular group was ousted by a rival. And this king was very upset. And he came to Ramana Maharshi's cave and sat down, says Ramana Maharshi, to meditate with the master. <laughs> <laughs> and the, and the, the master's watchful eyes for a long time. And the master said, but this was a very special monkey and this wasn't good enough for him. So he decided to meditate away from me in the deep forest. And he wanted to meditate in the deep forest. And of course, very soon, he acquired enough strength to, 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 to re regain his lost kingdom and he overthrew his rival and Ramana Maharshi added with all the compassion of anthropology and he married all the queens of the king that he had <laughs> as is their custom <laughs> but then they decided this, this, this restored uh, community to offer their thanks to the human sage who had helped them and Ramana Maharshi, it so happened, was not in his cave when they came, but they came and they shook all the trees until all the fruits fell as gifts at the mouth of the cave. <laughs> now, I, I see in this not only a, a wonderful tale, but possibly a clue to how a, a certain kind of evolution may have happened. It's quite possible that uh, even if humanity has evolved from other forms of life, but if they have, that's fine. But it's quite possible that some of our ancestors, perhaps anthropoid ancestors, became, fell into yoga. It's quite possible that they, 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 they were the first yogis and they became connected with, with God, with, with higher consciousness 
and this may well have been responsible for the speeding up and, and the, the mutation of all kinds of processes we don't know but certainly when individual human beings do this all of humanity is helped it's quite possible that our ancestors did this and, and evolution was. it's quite possible I'm only reporting data from the field I'm not offering too many interpretations that's Ramana Maharshi <coughs> and then he he rarely he, he, he's reported not to have uh, lost his temper ever but there's one exception somebody was uh, was trying to, leaves had to be collected for uh, 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 for some kind of uh, sacred offering in the temple and one of his assistants was rather impatient so he was hitting a tree with, a, with an iron rod to bring down the leaves or something she thundered it seems and he said how would it uh, how would you like it if this was done to you to your head this is a warning to humanity not to destroy nature really otherwise this is not going to be a good thing he, he thundered he was very angry he, he really didn't like it it's the only time reported uh, anger of Ramana Maharshi so animals his, his care for animals his care for human beings his care for all races and, uh, and cultures of human beings there was uh, also for, for India there were caste divisions even in his ashram some people thought that he should eat only with the upper castes and others thought he should eat with everyone regardless of this so he decided to sit in between and only half of him could be seen by the upper caste and only the other half of him could be seen by others so you only have half of divinity when you, when you bring politics into <laughs> so there is, uh, there is humor there there is political wisdom and there is patience but there is much more than that I think that that encounter with death the ability to look death in the to, to ask the fundamental question are we really only this body and a refusal to, to accept the other I think somewhat lazy answer that we are some other substance which has nothing to do with this body but to go on to the deeper answer I think that we are that which, which can be imaged by this body by the soul even in heaven or it can fail to be adequately imaged we must hold to that our true self and allow the light of that to enable us to overcome both, uh, both despair and the silly idea that we are here only to extract all that we can from the earth all, all, all for our own enjoyment rejecting both these ideas holding to the middle ground to, to bear witness to this limitless light of self-realization that is what Ramana Maharshi taught us thank you but he did die uh, uh, about a leader of course Ramana Maharshi and uh, when uh, the time came for him to die, he uh, he accepted it, and uh, he lay dying in his hut. And one of his favorite uh, assistants was a peacock, and this peacock placed himself on the roof of the sage's hut and screamed through the night, like like the muezzin in the mosque, summoning the whole world to the of the same before it's too late. And this must have been no doubt annoying to many others. But Ramana Maharshi's last famous words recorded are he said to somebody, Have you given that bird his dinner? <laughs> <laughs> I find great comfort in that as, as, a, as an unworthy disciple of his. Because the ego too needs to be fed. <laughs> if, it's, uh, if we are overindulgent in relation to it, or if we stifle it, that's not the way to self realization. No, of course not. India needs to be fed, of course.
but India needs also to be saved from the doctrine that they thought that that needs to be done. To resist the doctrine with the power of light and authority, I think Yamada Maharshi is a wonderful teacher there. So if I may connect Ramana Maharshi to the other teachers, in 1893, a hundred years ago, this year, which is the centenary uh, of Swami Vivekananda's great visit to Chicago, where he uh, uh, gave this, this, this lecture, where he announced Vedanta and, and all that follows from it, at an intellectual, philosophical level. Mind you, not at a level of, of, of realization, I don't think, but at a level of passionate con conviction. But clearly what was needed was a demonstration in the life and consciousness of somebody after that. Otherwise, this great lecture of Vivekananda would remain a lecture. I'm only a lecturer in the tradition of Vivekananda, who, as I tried to point out last time, when I spoke on Vivekananda, is the first great Indian teacher to have communicated without, uh, any, uh, directly, with the modern world in, 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 in the English language and who, uh, who represented Hinduism in all its totality, complexity, Catholicity and all of us uh, contemporary Indian lecturers try to follow Vivekananda in this but if Vivekananda in 1893 had not been followed in 1896 it, it's, it's a bit like no, no offence but if, if John the Baptist had not been followed by Jesus they would not have been a Christian tradition. I'm not talking about uh, doctrinaire Christianity, just I'm not talking about doctrinaire uh, Hindu theology when I'm talking about Ramana Maharshi. But if Ramana Maharshi had not uh, so quickly followed uh, and demonstrated, this was not just doctrine, this was not just philosophy, important the, the doctrine is, and, and wonderful the philosophy can be. And uh, but this, this connects with what, what happens in consciousness and with what happens to a whole life when, when consciousness is transformed. And if Ramana Maharshi's life had not been a, 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 a witness to the important connection with, with, with public life of spiritual truth, then we would merely be lecturers. And I, I don't think we would, uh, we would really be invited by Kathleen to lecture at the Terminals Academy. I don't think so. So that's very important that he dies in 1950, Ramana Maharshi. Gandhi is killed in 1948. And Sri Aurobindo, another great teacher about whom I will not be talking during the series, dies in 1951, I think. So more or less the sages, Ramana Maharshi and uh, Aurobindo, I think they, they see India through to, to independence and they quietly go away. Gandhi, Ramana Maharshi. And after that we've of course made a mess of things in India. But certain things do remain. There is, each time I talk about Ramana Maharshi in India, there is a special interest, I know. When I talk about Gandhi, when I talk about others, Vivekananda. So this is, this is the legacy. And if this were only a doctrine which applied to India and not to the world as a whole, I don't think it would be worth spending too much time on these sages. But these sages, from 1893 uh, uh, onwards, and, and my brother Gopal pointed out to me that 1893 is a very important year for a variety of other reasons. That Gandhi himself decides, I think, during that year to stay on in South Africa and to, and, and to, to really launch his struggle against racism there, which helped him so greatly 
in, in his struggle against uh, against foreign domination in India and against the social evils of, of Indian uh, Indian life and Vivekananda uh, and uh, am I right uh, Gopu that uh, Aurobindo returns to India in 1893 so this is a very special year so it's, it's, a, it's a matter of very great responsibility for me to be talking to you in, during this year and, and, and I feel very small really this year ought to be a gathering. You really ought to invite the uh, invite India to, to to think about these sages uh, during this year. Uh, uh, 18, uh, 19, 1993 ought to be a year of meditation in India. And uh, if if during this year we could make available to ourselves and and to the rest of the world the best of this teaching, uh, I've often thought of these sages as being seven. I like the Saptarishi, the seven sages, the polar bear, the seven stars, we call them seven rishis. And uh, one list of them goes something like this. Uh, we're very fond of making lists in India. <laughs> Centenaries and birthdays and so on. For a timeless civilization, this obsession with dates is very amusing, I think. But uh, Ram, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, without whom I don't think there could really be any authentic interfaith dialogue. He demonstrated in his in his wonderful sadhana of all the various traditions that this is possible, that the results are, are much the same, if whatever path you follow. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, Vivekananda, Ramana Maharishi, Gandhi, Aurobindo, Krishnamurti, I think, and Rabindranath Tagore, the great poet. They are seven sages, I think. There may be more. They may be, some, somebody might want to make a shorter list. But these seven sages do shine very brightly in the night sky. And I do think they're, they're meant to, to help us negotiate this very difficult uh, uh, transition to hopefully uh, a better age. Maharishi chose to, to enact this encounter with death. Is this a tradition in India? It would have been understood, obviously, in the, in the light of Nachiketas and his, his uh, confrontation with death. Is this something that would have been... Had it, has it been done before? Is it something, a kind of uh, spiritual exercise? That what a, what an important question. I believe not. I believe this tradition was lost. I'm convinced, if I may offer uh, another anthropological hypothesis, that the early uh, uh, history of humanity is probably a history of hundreds of thousands of Nachiketas. That what uh, comes through as that one Upanishad probably encodes uh, a vast human experience because human beings did die at a very, very young age in antiquity. But it's quite possible that some of them, the, 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 the human ones, young age oh, 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 uh, uh, discovered that there was no need to fear this death at all. They probably achieved illumination. But this was perhaps quickly lost, this, this tradition. So I, I don't know of any, any, any real uh, tradition of this. But this, you can't really lay this down as a condition. It happens or it doesn't. When death is meant to come it's very suddenly for this. And, but um, but this, this inquiry is completely unique as far as I know in, in modern times. I don't know of any record of, of, 
bit heavy. Uh, and I think, if I may offer some more comparisons, with no, no theological uh, comparisons strictly intended, so don't, don't take offence. When I read the story of Jesus uh, on, on, with his uh, parents, uh, on a visit to Jerusalem to the temple, when he, he gets lost, doesn't he? he he's, I have a feeling that's when he has that kind of encounter that Ramana Maharshi, he would have been of the same sort of age, I imagine. He is in search of his divine father. So is Ramana Maharshi. Ramana Maharshi's own father has died biologically. I don't think Jesus' father has died. But he is looking for that source of all life. And that may well be, be, uh, be, be what, what happens all over the world. But that, it happens very rarely. It happens to Anachiketa, it happens to Ramana. I, I would like to think that's what probably has happened to Jesus. And perhaps to hundreds and hundreds of early human beings, our, our ancestors, all of our ancestors. And I think it happens to every animal that's taken violently in, in the process of life, to sustain life itself. I think that each animal gives itself to life in that way. I'm sure it attains self-realization. It's quite possible that humans have merely imitated uh, other uh, life. <coughs> Always uh, with ecological restraint, this giving of life to itself. So this wisdom of the earth, uh, this wisdom of honoring death and honoring life, both holding both together, not, not clinging to, to life, not fearing death, There's rather an amusing and very instructive story which I might tell and, and connect it with the Ramana story. It's a story of the Ramayana. Since the Ramayana is very much in the news these days, I might as well tell his Ramayana story. And it's best to, to tell a Ramayana story standing up because I think we must honor that epic. It is uh, in one of the Ramayanas, there are many Ramayanas, this great epic of Rama and Sita. <coughs> the following story occurs. And it, it deeply connects with the Ramana story. Ramaraj, the kingdom of God has been established by Rama and Sita. And what does that mean? It means nobody is sick. There is no unfairness. There is no injustice. Nobody is dying. That is where a difficulty arises. There is one, one creature in the universe who is not very happy about that. And you can guess who that might be. It's death himself. Because death is now unemployed. <laughs> so the little children are making fun of him, saying, death, death, go away, we're not afraid of you. And, and old, old men and women and children. So death is not, not amused, and so death seeks an audience with God, with Rama, immediately. And of course, an audience has to be granted to death immediately. Death is a very important person in the universe. So Rama says to Lakshmana, his younger brother, you must be at that, stay at the, at the, at the, at the door, and not let anybody in while I engage death in dialogue, in, in this very important conversation with death that I'm going to have. And if you disobey me, you will have to be banished to the forest. He rather had a habit of doing this, Rama, didn't he? But anyway, Rama says to, uh, to, to Lakshmana, don't, don't allow anybody to interrupt my, my debate with death. So death uh, is in audience with Rama, as I see this story unfold now. And no doubt death is saying, but this is most unjust, uh, I, I've never caused suffering, I've always relieved people of suffering, 
And now you have made me a laughing stock. You've made me unemployed and this is humiliating. You can't do this. Surely not God. You can't do this. And perhaps God, Ram, is, is arguing death. Perhaps he's saying, well, we might give you premature retirement and, and put your services to use in some other way, perhaps. Well, he's trying to, to persuade him, but death is not so easily convinced. Just then, outside at the gate, appears a very angry sage called Durvasa. And, and, and this, this, the sage Durvasa has the habit of laying a curse upon anybody who disobeys him immediately. And he says, I want to see Rama immediately. And Lakshmana says, if I refuse him at the most, well, he's, he's going to lay a curse upon the kingdom of God itself. And that's going to be terrible. At the most, I will be banished to the forest. Let me take the risk. So he lets Durvasa go. Now the, the door creaks and death hears the door creak and looks over his shoulder and finds an angry sage <coughs> in the doorway and disappears. That's the end of the story. But I think what that means is, death says, so long as there's going to be anger in sages, it's going to be business as usual for me. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, let's move from that time, that mythical time, to 1896, to Madurai, to the temple of Meenakshi. I think what death is saying to the goddesses, there was a time when I was nearly going to be unemployed. <laughs> and the sage Durvasa saved me from that. But now there is going to be no life for me to be there. I'm truly going to be unemployed because the human species is going to destroy all life. I face true and real and final unemployment. So that is the crisis. We deeply dishonor death. I'm drawing close to the possibility of annihilation. And we must do that. Some sense of honor towards, towards death, who has, who has, after all, protected the ecology of life. So I, I think that that story in the Ramayana connects very fundamentally with uh, Ramayana. And indeed, this must have been the compact with death down the ages, I think. Uh, on earth and, and, and in the universe as a whole. I'm sure materiality, matter itself in its perfect lawfulness, obeys the same principles. When will there be a science? When will there be a physics of all this? A chemistry, a biology, a geography? Sannyas name I forget, but he'd taken a sannyas in the Indian tradition and taken the name Abhishektananda, which is a wonderful Christian name in Sanskrit. Abhishekta literally means the anointed one, the joy of the anoint joy of anointment is the name, Sanskrit name that he takes this Christian uh, uh, 
monk. Now, uh, Abhishiktananda was a disciple, I think, I confess, is a disciple of Ramana Maharshi. This is a fact acknowledged by Abhishiktananda himself in, in several books of his, in one of which he has translated Ramana's Tamil uh, poetry into, into English. But uh, I don't know if Stephen, you want me to say this, but I do. I did, did think it was it was a bit sad that in in the works of I, I deeply honour Dom Abhijit's work and and his work for India and and for Christianity and for Hinduism. But there's no mention, even an index mention of Ramana Maharshi. I don't know if, if you want me to to say this also, Stephen. But this I have, I have to say this: that we must, when Gandhi learned something from from Christ, he said so. But I don't know why these, uh, this has happened, that in the obituary notices, nothing is mentioned of this, this, this sage, Ramana Maharshi, whose uh, companionship was sought by Abhishektananda. And Abhishektananda was joined by Dambhikrifets. I think this is sad for several reasons. A, it prevents the West from taking a more detailed interest in, in this particular spiritual tradition of India, Ramana Maharshi. So what emerges is, 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 is a kind of appeal for a, a communion of, a, of different faiths, which, uh, which is without what might be called the light which this sage could, could shed on, on different place. I think we must talk about people. Abhishektananda didn't abandon his Christianity, but he, he discovered uh, the, the truth of non-duality from Ramana Maharshi and brought that truth to his understanding of Christ and said, it, and he said so in his books. But I find this not mentioned at all in, uh, in Don Bibliofit's words. But is that important? If it were a small matter of detail, I would have said, how does it matter? If it were merely a, a, a question of acknowledgement of some, some, some in the way in which you know, authors acknowledge some debt. If it were a small professional matter, I wouldn't bother. No, I think in not being able to, for whatever reason, he has made Ramana Maharshi unavailable <coughs> to, to the contemporary world, which is sad. I, I, I salute the work of Dambit Griffiths and, and Father Abhishektananda. But I, I think if, if the three could be presented together, Ramana Maharshi, uh, that would be the kind of new creative uh, uh, tradition, a, a new kind of Guru Parampara. I mean, uh, you know, several say you are Christ, you are Ramana Maharshi, you are Abhishekta. I think that's the way to go forward, I think, in all kinds of uh, new ways. Where you have a sage like Ramana Maharshi, he doesn't belong only to India or to Hinduism, there should be no inhibition. And I, I, I see Jesus as a, as a sage. By the way, when in India we, we, we say that somebody is a sage, we mean the ultimate compliment, metaphysical compliment. The sage, the self-realized sage in, in Indian metaphysics is ontologically higher than the avatar, the incarnation, or gods and goddesses. In, in, a, in an indestructible body, it's, uh, as the Americans would say, if, you, if, an, in, if, if, if a, a, an avatar in an indestructible body attains self-realization, that's no big deal. <laughs> But if, if in a mortal body, with all the, the suffering involved, if you are able to attain self that's something. A sage is in a mortal body, and, and Jesus before was, was, was the Christ before the resurrection. And 
Brahmana Maharshi and others. So I do think that uh, that it's, it should be possible for uh, for Hinduism and Christianity, especially, to come uh, come closer together in the light of. Uh, the teachings of Ramana Maharshi, and in the in the light of the the very deep and wonderful uh, influence he's had on such uh, such marvelous uh, uh, saints uh, uh, as Don uh, uh, This is uh, this is not a question that I, I can possibly ignore, but uh, I, I, I think I did mention that I never uh, n- never saw him in the flesh. I, th- I never, but he became very very real to me uh, at at a point in my in my life when two things were happening. One, the the uh, the Western philosophy that I had learned, and I had learned it with great care, and, and, and here in this country. I was I, I, I had some wonderful tutors, and they they they, they encouraged me to think in, in my own ways, which is why it took me very long to learn anything at all. But they were very patient, <laughs> and they didn't send me down to Oxford for taking very very long. I remember my tutor used to say, "Gandhi produced crude quantity, crude quantity." <laughs> I, I was in, in, in interested in producing quality, and, and so then, then I, I then I remember I I went off uh, uh, for a long time, and I came back after several months and there was a letter waiting for me from my tutor with a copy of a letter he'd written uh, to the university saying, Mr. Gandhi is quite capable of producing a PhD thesis but isn't doing so. <laughs> so, I, so I went to see him and I said, well, no, this is not true and I produced lots of notes from my pockets and diaries and so on. And then, then he, he heard me out and I said, I've, 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 I've travelled all over the country and, and you know, I'm not here only to, to get a degree, I want to study the civilization also. So he looked at me very hard and said, all right, Gandhi, do it your way. And he, he, he let me. And so I learned a lot. But there was a point, a point came in my life when this was not enough. I felt internal difficulties, philosophical difficulties, and I had no way. I didn't know how. I knew that a completely new kind of concept, a new kind of intuition and insight was needed, even to advance my own professional work. That was one thing. And also, and here I don't want to go into details, my own personal life was in a colossal mess. And I didn't know how to how to move there either. And none of the, the the available solutions seemed to me to be right, uh, either in my personal life. And I had never found my professional and personal lives coming so dangerously close together. I never. I thought one could be deal with one without dealing with the other, but one couldn't clearly. And that's when I, I had, as a child, heard the name Ramana Maharshi. My own mother had sometimes mentioned him, but that's all. Then, I don't know how to explain this, but books by and on Ramana Maharshi started coming my way. And I devoured them hungrily. And then after that, it was, uh, uh, it was unstoppable. My thinking of him ceaselessly. And then I, for the first time, I, I, I meditated and, and learnt some Sanskrit and was able to understand things which I would never have dreamt that I would be able to. And so a completely new sort of direction, both in my professional work and in my personal life, started. And this grew, and, 
And some 12 years ago, I felt a, a very real presence of Ramana Maharshi in my life and consciousness, a very, which, which has endured. Now, I, uh, I have changed residences, jobs, and, and all kinds of things rapidly, but this doesn't change, this doesn't go away. This stays, I don't know how. And I, uh, I'm a Gujarati, a very skeptical sort of good person in India, Gujarati is. We don't accept things on trust very easily. <laughs> so are you. So I, I, I can't say that this is, this is some kind of God. No, no, I, no, no. No, something which can stay for so long in, in, in my consciousness, in, in, my, in my life, unworthy. I, I, I think there is something to, to that if it can <clears throat> resist uh, uh, my, my own uh, laziness and my own, the vagaries of my mind and heart. If it can sustain me, there must be something to it. But the, 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 there is uh, the witness of another Gujarati, uh, Moraji Desai, uh, who is even uh, less, uh, <clears throat> even, even more, I think, uh, unlikely to take things on trust than I am. But he, uh, he reports that when he, many, many years ago, he went to Ramana Maharshi's ashram. And this is Moraji Desai, the, 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 the politician with a very, very clear head. And uh, he, he reports that he sat in, 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 the, in the room where Ramana Maharshi, and a bird uh, flew into Ramana Maharshi's lap and, and squeaked. And Ramana Maharshi, and this is Moraji Desai reporting, turned to an assistant and said, have you been uh, destroying their nest? They said, yes, don't do it again. Because this bird is, this is a Moraji Desai. So, well, uh, something like that has happened to me. Although I never saw Ramana Maharshi, I never saw these tiny miracles. But the far greater miracle is to, to change a, a, a philosopher like me, a person like me in the direction of persistent inquiry with all my enormous limitations and for something more mysterious than that for something ontological, for a sense for the first time of, uh, of the spirit, of the presence of God, if you like, of the self, being there quite clearly in the form of my guru. But no question of Ramana Maharshi ever saying that he and he alone is, is the truth. No. I see his form as a gateway to, to the vast, uh, uh, to the infinity of truth. But he is a gateway and you have to have a, you are blessed with a, a, a sort of darshan that and I, uh, that's my encounter but it continues uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a, something that has to be renewed every day and I, uh, I, I talk about it but I, I also know that there is nothing there in, in that devotion in that adoration that I and hundreds of others have for him which inhibits the most philosophical inquiry of the most rigorous kind all that is permitted absolutely permitted and especially love for all traditions all faiths, it becomes easier and possible and for people like me. I see that, uh, that uh, the sage Ramana has, uh, oh, has a lot to teach us, yes. But that's, uh, without going into more personal details, uh, is, is the brief uh, answer to your question. Not very brief, it's long. <laughs> And yet there must be many people who actually saw and met Ramana Maharshi or indeed Jesus. I always wonder myself, if I had met Jesus, would I have recognized who he was? And uh, this must always be a very subtle matter with meeting the Master. 
I have met two or three Indian masters, including uh, um, Sai Baba. We met him together, and also uh, Maharaj Charan Singh of Bears. Wonderful people, but something in my Protestant soul can't do this of, of saying, my Lord and my God, or whatever it was that St. Peter, when he recognized who Jesus was, why is this so difficult to the, to the Europeans? Why is this so difficult to us Westerners? It, I, I've written a book called India Seen Afar. This is what I associate to Paul. I haven't been able to make this final. Well, Kathy, let, let me uh, suggest uh, uh, an answer straight away. And again, no offence meant to... I think Christian tradition has not encouraged the, the pursuit of self-realization down the centuries. Why? I don't know. But that, that nobody's been able to say, shut me down now if you think I'm, I'm, I'm trespassing. But I do really think... I, I find my, my, uh, my Advaita in Indian philosophical soul finds it very odd that nobody's been allowed to, uh, to want to become uh, Jesus Christ. Now, the theology of this I find unconvincing. I find nothing in the words of Christ which I've read prayerfully and not only carefully and the decades, which, which discourages one from this. But I do find that history, I, I don't know, I don't know of any such. There must have been surely attempts which have not been reported or which were not allowed to, to fructify, is, is my answer, Kathleen, to your question. Because you, you have lacked in this history examples of such uh, uh, aspiration, you were not able to recognize the, the, the fruition of such an aspiration somewhere else. You can't suddenly do this. But what is a thousand years? Ramana Maharaj is only doing something which must have been done 10,000, 20,000 years ago by the Natsiketas of antiquity. And India has also forgotten this. And by the way, a small point, Indians are not as gullible as you might think. We, we, go, we go and do all this to a guru, but when we find he's not, we go to, go to another guru quietly. <laughs> <laughs> so stay that way. out the other day, a fact that Ramana Maharshi, the sage, did not leave, physically did not leave this, this ashram in, in South India. He stayed there for 50 years and died there. And uh, 
Yes, let me, let, me, let, me, let me tell this with the aid of a story. Somebody went to him in the 30s or 40s, by, by which time Gandhi had established himself as a great wandering teacher and reformer of uh, modern India. And so somebody went to Ramana and said, why don't you uh, go all over the country like Gandhi and change society and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and preach uh, a, a new social order? He kept quiet. This question was repeated a second time. A third time in India, even the most foolish question, if it's asked three times, it, it has to be answered. <laughs> <laughs> so Ramana Maharshi answered the question. He said, if Gandhi were to stay in one place, people are going to say, why does this man not move all over the place, <laughs> preach against social iniquity? And if I were to move all over the place, why doesn't this man sit in one? I must do what I have come to do. Gandhi must do what he has come to do. Suggesting here that there is variety, legitimate variety in, in, in spiritual teaching and, and, and in the manifestation of truth. And I think in his case, such he was an artist, his, his whole life was, was, uh, was, uh, was, was artistic in, in a divine way. I think he was situated there to, to image the truth of the, the, the immovable self in the heart of all that moves. And there's a story which he himself told. Once, when he was very young, he was on the hill at the age of 17, a, a, a self-realized young boy. And he, he used to wander all over the hill in the, in the sun. And, and, a, and a very low-caste woman, a Chandal woman, a really ferocious woman came, and he reports that he shouted to, at him in Tamil. And of course, Tamil can be very devastating. Apparently, the gist of what she was, said to him was, are you off your head? Why didn't you sit in one place? One place? Why are you wandering all over the hill? And Ramana Maharshi said that I slapped my own face in agreement with what this, this woman had taught me and decided to stay in one place. Because this young self-realized sage would have thrown away his body carelessly. He was needed by the world. And this, this outcast was more or less saying, don't, we don't need your do-gooding. There are others more capable than you who will look after us. And we will fight our own social battles. But we need you to share your truth with the whole world. Stay in one place. And I see this woman as none other than the goddess Meenakshi herself, who assumes that form of the uh, outcast woman to teach this lesson to the young boy, the second lesson. So he stays in one place, blesses Gandhi's work. And Gandhi doesn't invite Ramana Maharshi to, to come to any Congress Working Committee meeting or anything like that. <laughs> I mean, he respects Ramana Maharshi's commitment uh, equally. I think it's very important to respect variety. Somebody who stays in one place, somebody who moves constantly, an idolatry of one or the other would be, would be false, I think. Peripatetic uh, philosophers, there was a, a meeting on peripatetic teaching where this was sought to be converted into peripatetic uh, scholars of the world unite, something like that. <laughs> but they're not meant to unite and stay in one place at all. They're meant to uh, be wandering. You can't do that. You have to respect the, the, the commandment of the truth. Don't we find this in Jesus? He both travels and he stays in one place. He's got this going out and coming back. He crosses oceans, rivers, goes up mountains. The Prophet Muhammad, likewise. But somebody asked him, this is a story that Raja Rao told me, I think. Somebody asked him, why don't you uh, 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 Mahatmas meet one another? He said, how do you know we don't? <laughs> <laughs> so 
they, they probably do. I don't think in some occult way of travel, although maybe that's possible too. But their hearts are one. On that point, Brother May, I asked um, uh, maybe a question I ought to know, but did um, Krishnamurti physically meet Gandhi? I believe not. It, it would have been a very difficult meeting. I yeah, think. right, right. Yeah. But I, I, I think it would have been. Uh, no, I don't think he did. Krishnamurti, Gandhi, Aurobindo, Tagore, Vivekananda are modern teachers, not only because they, they are in modern times, but they do really travel a lot. They travel to other lands. They, they speak uh, the English language. They teach in the English language. They, they engage in debate. And they have produced a corpus of, uh, of I think, spiritual literature of which the English language could, could just be proud of. Um, many of us have been very grateful to Purit Swami yes. for giving us the Upanishads and the Gita. And I wonder, uh, he is a contemporary, of, uh, perhaps a little earlier than the people you are mentioning. I wondered if it would not be a digression to say something about him. A simple answer to that is I don't know enough about actually Purit Swami really to talk about him. But I know, I know the translation of the Upanishads that, that he and uh, Yeats produced, with which I have some difficulties, the translation. But I'm very grateful for the fact of the translation yes. and for its occurrence and for this collaboration and this partnership, which I, I think is wonderful. But I don't know, know enough about his life. Really, I can't. Uh, and when I, when I make lists, these are not meant to be lists which exclude others, but really which bring some people together and for one kind of purpose. Other kinds of lists could be made for other kinds of purpose, certainly, absolutely. But I deeply respect that collaboration between Purohit Swami and, and, and Yates, and indeed the relationship between Tagore and Yates, and, uh, and between uh, Ramana Maharshi and his uh, disciples from outside India. It's a very wonderful, beautiful relationship. So it's a very moving story of Arthur Osborne. He was. Uh, he left his family. It so happened that he he'd gone to Burma just before the war started, leaving his family behind in Ramanashram. And then the war started, and the Japanese invaded. And he was prisoner of war through the war through those years. And during this time, his family were looked after by Ramanashram. And he had prayed that his family should be safe, and they had prayed that he should be safe. And this was the case. And after the war years, Arthur Osborne came back and spent the rest of uh, his life in the ashram. And he must have learned Tamil to have been able to translate. Ramana Maharshi could, could understand English, but he chose not to speak it. Because I think speaking is again an art which he respected. He, he, he spoke all the South Indian languages and Sanskrit. It was very important for him to speak well and fluently. He's known for his great silence, but he was under no vow of silence. He could be silent and he could speak with equal spontaneity. So there are many kinds of collaboration and partnership. I think a, a book has to be written on that, on the story of a spiritual partnership <coughs> in the modern world. You have uh, Gandhi and Tagore again in partnership of one kind. You have 
Romerola and, and all these many of these other sages and so many other but uh, that's, uh, that demands a scholarship which I don't possess perhaps when you say partnership you're alluding to, uh, to use a musical analogy a chord a spiritual teacher struck together because harmony can't emanate from one note and you mentioned the seven sages, like seven notes of the scale. Like, if we could have real harmony, it means striking notes together. And that would produce a richness that no individual note could possibly provide. Uh, are you possibly alluding to that sort of... Uh, That's very powerful um, image. Except that there would have to be the abiding note, the shruti note. Mm. And they, you know, they would... They can't be just... So no, not a jungle. <laughs> no, no. But I think at the heart of, of the uh, seven notes is the first note to speak, fundamental note. But otherwise, I think what you're saying is very important and interesting. That there has to be this chord, there has to be this uh, this, uh, this togetherness. This I'm sure you have to get rid of all the discursive comparative intellectual comparisons which really destroy the, uh, you know, the, the beauty of it. So if we can think of them as you know, all subsumed in one chord rather than how we're going to separate they perhaps have to be many different kinds of chords. Many different. I mean, I'm suggesting that, that there, there would be varieties of very many ways of doing this. But we should begin with. We could begin with these seven, I think, mm-hmm. and with others. But uh, I'm not in favour. Having said this, and I think I'm like to say, not in favour of, of 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 a kind of uh, 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 teams emerging. Because I, I think <laughs> because people have their own lists, and they, they, I do really think that this is one very powerful team. I think, it, as I've said, I think this is the team that India ought to feel in all her life. And it would be a, a wonderful team, would be victorious again and again. But uh, I would like to see see them together and separately. But when I had this list, it was a list of which enabled us to look at all of them in relationship and also separately. Let you go until next time, Romo. I remember the almost the first time I met you, you said, well, sadly, that uh, it was providential that India had learned to speak English because only so we were able to teach the rest of us. And I think that is very true. We're deeply grateful to you for coming and, uh, and teaching us. Thank you, guys.